As we move through the book of Acts now in these weeks, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. I think Acts 1.8 is the theme verse for the whole book. At least it seems to be unfolding in that way. You know what Acts 1.8 said? You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what we're seeing Every time we open the book is that the Holy Spirit falls afresh in a powerful way. Unusual manifestations of power happen. A bold witness results and life and adding to the church. And sometimes that power is quiet power. It looks natural in the preaching. And it is dynamic and omnipotent to cause people to be reborn. But most of the time, so far in the book of Acts, the power has been extraordinary power. It's been unusual manifestations of power. Things like tongues of fire and sounds of wind and shaking of building and people being healed. Last week's text, just a verse earlier than what Rick just read, verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed, all of them. They were all healed. It's an amazing thing. And, and the church was built up. Verse 14, we looked at last week. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. So there's the pattern. The Spirit moves in a powerful way. Demonstrations of that power are given. And witness is given with boldness. And the church grows. Now, what I see in the next passage, verses 17 to 21, is the price and the preciousness of that power. And before we look at those two things, I would like us to pray together and ask God's help and special presence here as we go ahead. Lord, in the quietness of this moment now as we listen to you. I, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and give docile hearts, teachable spirits, a, a real readiness to have our lives changed, a hunger to be different, a hunger for all the fullness of God, as Paul calls it, Ephesians 3.19. For that special coming upon us that Acts 1.8 describes and now we're watching happen again and again. I pray that every need that was brought into this service, as remotely connected as some may feel it is with this sermon, would be met. Because you are an infinitely wise and infinitely loving God. So come now and and you do the teaching, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The price of this spiritual power I see in verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the common prison. So the price that the apostles are now paying for the experience of crowd-gathering, life-changing, healing, hope-giving power 
is three things. One, people are jealous. Two, people accuse them of false teaching. I'm going to get that out of the word Sadducees. Three, there's a carnal counterpower. They're thrown in jail. So let's look at each of those three now. First, jealousy. Verse 17, second half. Filled with jealousy, they arrested them. Let's think about this for a minute, this jealousy business. Spiritual power is very dangerous. It's dangerous for the person who has it. It's dangerous for the person who doesn't have it and wants it. The reason it's dangerous for the person is, who has it is because it can create pride. Even God's power can create pride. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have it and you want it, it can create jealousy. And both pride and jealousy are based on a big mistake. The mistake of pride, if you have God's power, is that you forget it's God's. Or maybe it's more subtle. Maybe you say it's God's, but you inside really feel, I fulfilled two or three very important conditions to get this power that other people apparently haven't fulfilled as well as I fulfilled. Like faith, prayer, purity. Now, what's the mistake being made there? The mistake being made is rooted in a very profound and utterly necessary theological conviction, namely, only God gives the power to fulfill the conditions to get power. 1 Corinthians 15:10 I worked harder than any of them nevertheless it was not I but the grace of God which was with me that's what kept Paul and a mighty powerful man from pride because he knew that every condition he fulfilled to receive power was a work of power in his life Therefore, I want to stick in here a very strong statement about convictions concerning the sovereignty of grace. I believe the antidote to pride, and I believe necessary in this whole discussion of spiritual power, necessary are large doses of conviction concerning the sovereignty of God's grace. If you don't believe God is sovereign in dispensing His grace, but that you are sovereign in how to get the grace, you will have pride bubbling up within you. The only thing that ultimately severs the root of pride in this whole area of spiritual power is the deep, profound conviction that God not only gives the power, but gives the grace to fulfill the conditions to get the power. If you don't believe that, you do not have a strong protection against pride. If you have an Arminian theology, let's just name it, all right? If you have an Arminian theology, which at its center believes in the self-determination of the human soul, you have a very weak guard against spiritual presumption and pride. The only ultimate weapon against it is the deep spiritual conviction, God is God. If I have prayed, it was God praying. If I have faith, it is a gift of God. If I am pure, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. You read 1 Corinthians 3. 
I sowed, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So neither he who sowed is anything, nor he who watered is anything, but God is everything. Again and again and again in Scripture, the rug is pulled out from under pride by pulling out self-determination from the heart of man. That's an utterly crucial doctrine to hold fast to in this whole issue of the pursuit of spiritual pride. But that's almost a parenthesis in my message because I only mention pride here, even though it's not in the text, because I think pride is sort of the flip side of jealousy, and jealousy is here. So let's go right to jealousy now. Jealousy is the real danger that's here, and the price that you will pay if God sovereignly dispenses power upon your life is that people will be jealous of you. They're going to be jealous. Now, what is jealousy? Where does it come from? Jealousy is not simply the desire to have power that you see in somebody else. That's not jealousy. That's okay, I think. It can be okay. Jealousy is not seeing Paul blessed with power in his preaching. And if you are John Mark looking at him and saying, Oh, I wish I had that kind of power in my preaching. That's not jealousy. The Bible says, imitate your leaders. Look at the outcome of their faith and imitate them. Jealousy is this. When you look at Paul and you say, you get angry. You feel resentful that he has it, you don't, and you get mad that he has it. Jealousy doesn't just want what someone else has. Jealousy wants them not to have it if you don't. That's jealousy. And that's bad. Where does that come from? It comes from three things. Number one, it comes from lovelessness. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is not Jealous. Therefore, lovelessness probably is jealous. Real simple, isn't it? If you love somebody and you see a blessing come upon their life that you don't get, if you love them, you're glad, right? You're glad. You rejoice with those who rejoice. And if you don't love them, if you're not a person of love, but you're a person all wrapped up in your own inadequacies and your own... uh, weaknesses and your own sins and you don't have the time of day for wishing good for anybody else and then they get blessed, your first response might be, mm, why do they get it and I don't get it? It isn't right. It isn't fair. And that leads to the second source of jealousy, faithlessness in the sovereign grace of God. Faithlessness in the sovereign grace of God. Because if you believe in God's sovereignty, that he gives gifts according to his will, as it says both in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Hebrews 2.4, if you believe in his sovereignty that he dispenses his gifts and his power freely according to his sovereign wisdom, and you get mad because somebody gets a blessing, you don't trust God. You don't trust God. When you get angry at God's sovereign dispensations of grace, you are faithless at that moment. Faith in the sovereign wisdom and grace of God says, I don't understand why that church is being blessed and not our church. I don't understand why revival is falling in Indonesia and not Minneapolis. I don't understand why so-and-so gets power and I am weak. But God, you are God. And I will cry for power, but I will not criticize your judgments. See the difference? Can you make that distinction? Faith cries for power. It does not criticize the choice of God as to who gets it and when. There's a big difference. It's okay to cry. It's okay to call. Bible says, call on me. Cry for power. Ask for power. Seek power. 
Luke 11.13. But when God chooses, he chooses, not us. So that's the second root of jealousy, faithlessness in the sovereign goodness of God. Now, the third root of jealousy is false doctrine. The Sadducees here mentioned did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, chapter 26, verses 6 and 8. You don't need to turn there, but you, you all know this. Or many of you know this, and you can check that verse out later. It says, the Sadducees believe not in the spirit, angels, or the resurrection. It was over. They believed in annihilation. That's all. But these disciples, back in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you can see it. That's probably right across the page in your Bible. You can just look back there. What got the Sadducees so riled up is that these people were not only doing power, they were doing power on behalf of resurrection teaching, and they hated it. They hated it. So if, if they had heard the first half of my message so far, they would have said if they were sitting down here, wait a minute, you've got us all wrong. It's not that we don't love them. It's not that we don't trust God. It's that they're teaching wrong things. This magic stuff, or however they're doing these healing tricks, is only serving to advance false doctrine about resurrection, giving people false hope. And so the third source of jealousy is false doctrine. If somebody disagrees with you about a doctrine, even if you're right, and you start having power in your ministry, then the criticism will come against your doctrine. Now that leads to the second kind of, of uh, suffering or the second part of the price you will pay. The first part is jealousy and the second is simply accusations of false doctrine. Accusations of false doctrine. One of the best ways to discredit somebody's power is to criticize their teaching. If you can't counter power with power, then at least you can say, their power is in the service of false doctrine and therefore it can't be God's power and so don't pay any attention to them. It's... Now, I'm not saying doctrine doesn't matter. That's obvious, I hope. I'm saying even if your doctrine is right, you will be criticized for it being wrong. That's what happened here. The Sadducees were wrong on the resurrection. The disciples were right on the resurrection, when power came down to bless their ministry, one way that the Sadducees went after them was to say they're wrong in their doctrine about the resurrection. They couldn't counter the power. They admitted all these people around them were well, but they could attack the doctrine, and they did. And here's the third way that you pay a price for power. Carnal counter power comes at you. And I see that here simply in the fact that they were thrown in jail. The high priest, the Sadducees, didn't have any spiritual power to bring against theirs, like Elijah, the prophets of Baal. Okay, let's test power against power here. Well, they didn't have any. And so they said, we'll use the kind of power we do have. We have carnal power. We have politics on our side, and we have jails on our side. We have a sword on our side. We have uh, the attitudes of a lot of people on our side, so we will use what we have. Now, short of the sword and prison, the most common carnal weapons against power are ostracism and slander. 
The best way to handle somebody who is being blessed in their ministry with power, you don't have that power, and you are jealous of that power, or suspicious or angry somehow, is to is to try to ostracize that person onto the periphery of what's acceptable and then uh, slander them with half-truths or exaggerations or innuendos or sarcasm or falsehoods. It's pretty effective because a lot of people are always sitting on the fence, waiting and looking, and if they aren't thinking for themselves, then they might drop over on the side of a, a very effective innuendo or sarcasm. So there it is. There's the price. Three things. If God blesses your life with some extraordinary ministry of power, you will have people jealous of you, and you will have uh, accusations of false doctrine, and you will have uh, carnal counter moves, counter powers against you of, of various sorts. And so I just want you to have your eyes open if you join me in praying for the blessing of God to come in, in power because it will have price tag that you will have to pay. But now I want to end not on the price but on the preciousness because it is precious and it's worth it. It's worth whatever price you have to pay to get it and enjoy it. Now let me try to show you what I see of the preciousness of this power in this text. I suppose if I were to lay the text out before you, just these few verses, and say what do you see in there that is... Uh, precious about the power of God. I, I suspect the first thing you'd say is an angel came and, and got them out of jail. And that's power. I mean, when an angel in the middle of the night opens the prison's door and they get out, that's power. That's divine power and it's precious. I admit that. But I'm not going to land and camp on that. I, I'm going to include it, as you'll see. But the reason I don't want to spend the rest of the message just on this issue of delivering power from prison is because I think we might then fall prey to a kind of triumphalist notion that says uh, the power of God always rescues. The power of God always heals. The power of God, whenever it's there, does uh, tender things for people. And that'd be wrong. And the reason I know it would be wrong is because just two chapters later, Stephen gets no angel. He gets killed. And then five chapters later, James gets no angel. He gets beheaded in prison. John the Baptist got no angel. The precious thing about the power of God is that it's God's power and not ours. The precious thing about supernatural power is that it's in God's hands and not mine. You can be sure that if you held the reins of this kind of prison opening power, you would run the world differently than God runs it, wouldn't you? You would, you would thoroughly botch redemptive history, I promise you. We are in no position to run the world. I am in no position to manipulate the power of God. It is way too big, way too strong. The precious thing about the power of God is that it's God's power. And he gives it when and where he alone chooses. We do not pull strings as though he were a puppet. And it's a precious thing that it's in God's hands and not in our hands. An angel comes 
and he delivers or an angel does not come. Stephen is stoned. James is beheaded. The apostles are released in the middle of the night. Peter is released in the middle of the night. But follow Paul's life on through. What do you see? Where was the angel when he spent a night and a day at sea? Where was the angel when he was whipped with 39 lashes five times? Where was the angel when he was beaten with rods three times? Where was the angel when he suffered a nakedness and a hunger? Where was the angel when he had danger on the streets and in the suburbs and in the country and on the rivers? Where was the angel in Paul's life at the end when he was finally killed by Nero? The answer is he was in heaven watching, doing exactly what God told him to do. And that's a precious thing. If you believe in God and his goodness and his sovereignty and his wisdom, that's a precious thing. If if you want to run the world, that won't sound precious. If you want to pull God's strings, that won't sound precious. But it's precious. If the angel comes and you are empowered and released, you know why it is? So that you can give life to people. You see that in verse 20? Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Why did he come? Why does he let some people out? Real clear. So that life can be given. Life. Life can be given. Go give life. Give eternal life. Give forgiveness of sins. Give abundant life. Spread it around. Go. Of course they're going to arrest you again. Of course you might be killed. But go give life while you can give life. But if the angel doesn't come, you know what the purpose is? Not that you might give the life, but that you just might live the life right on into heaven. You see, for every one of us in this room, the time is going to come when the angels of deliverance no longer come. Everybody. Even if at ten times during your life you have stunning supernatural blessings in your life, or a thousand of them. There will come a day when the angel does not arrive in time because the hour has been appointed. And that will be precious. James says in chapter 4, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do such and such. Your life is in the hands of God, and that's a precious thing. It is a precious thing that God controls the dispensing of his power. When God withholds delivering power, he gives dying, dying power. When God withholds delivering power, he gives dying power. Stephen, my middle name is Stephen. My father named me after Stephen. And uh, I love Stephen. I want to be like Stephen. If I could die like Stephen, it would be a great privilege. When he was dying, and I don't know if you realize what it's like to be stoned. You know, when I was a kid and I read about stoning, I thought about the stones I threw. I threw stones as a kid. I was a stone thrower. And they were all about this big. You can't kill anybody with stones like that unless you use a slingshot like David. You know what kind of stones you use to kill people? Stone's about the size of this Bible. Let's call it today bricking, not stoning. Let's call it bricking. They got bricked to death. That's the way you kill somebody. Now, here's Stephen, and he was being bricked to death. 
And if you don't like somebody, you don't aim at their head for a while. And he's being beat up with these big stones. And he looks up into heaven and it says in verse 55 of chapter 7, full of the Holy Spirit. Now mark that. That's important. He's full of the Holy Spirit with no angel. No angel came not because he was carnal. Oh, the danger when we're dying. I've wrestled with saints in their, in their hospital beds. I just remember one older lady, probably the best saint this church has ever known, who wrestled like she never wrestled with a big black cinder tongue in her mouth. Why can't I die? She said, where's God? How we wrestle with wondering if he's against us when we're dying. Now mark this. Here is a man that in his dying, the most painful kind of death perhaps he could have imagined, and he was full of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Does that help your dying? It does not mean that when pain is on you, God's forgotten you and that you're not blessed by the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And so I want to say to you, when the, when the power to deliver is withheld, the power to die is given. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, When you suffer and are reproached for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Luke 21, Jesus said, They will lay their hands on you and deliver you up to prisons. Some of you they will put to death, but do not hear not a hair of your head will perish. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. What in the world does that mean? It means that dying power will be given so that there won't be one millisecond of break in your fellowship with the living God. You will go right into glory. So that sometimes the angel comes and he gives the power to be delivered and give life to others. Sometimes the angel waits. And then the appointment is live the life right on into glory. Now let me just close with a, an invitation and plea. I would like more power in my life. More people saved, more people healed, more signs and wonders that the world would sit up and take notice and believe in Jesus and that his name would be honored. I invite you to join me in that kind of quest. But I warn you, do it with your eyes open because there's a price to be paid. Jealousy, accusations of false doctrine, counter power but it's worth it because the power of God is precious it's precious because when it comes to deliver it's for life giving and what's more precious than living your life to give life and when the power of God does not come to deliver it's there to help you live the life right on into glory and that's precious. It's a precious thing that the power of God is in the hands of God and not in my hands.
God forbid that we should ever develop any doctrine that would somehow put the power of God into these fallen, sinful hands. Rather, do you see how liberating this is? Do you see how this frees you to go pray for people? Do you see how how free this makes you to ask God to do things so that you don't feel crushed if it doesn't happen? Do you see how free we should be to pray and ask for blessing, knowing that He's free, He can give when and where He pleases? So with your eyes wide open, come with me. Be willing to pay the price and remember the preciousness. Now, at the end of this service, there are going to be some teams of praying people standing here. And uh, we've got 10 minutes or so before we need to be out of here. So I just invite you to uh, come up and pray with them if God's been speaking to you. Just for more power in your life. Or maybe something you're facing at work this week. Or maybe some sickness in your body or relationship. They'd love to pray with any of you who, who want to take a few minutes and just come up and introduce yourself and ask for prayer. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. Just lift my voice to praise you that you are God and that I am not God and we are not gods and that we are utterly dependent upon you. It is not our willing or our running, but God who has mercy. You harden whom you will and you have mercy upon whom you will. Saddam Hussein's heart and George Bush's heart are in your hand today. We just lift our voice and say, have mercy, have mercy in the Middle East. Have mercy upon our church. Have mercy upon your body worldwide. Pour out your spirit, Lord, in humbling, life-giving power that the name of Jesus might be honored and that millions of people might escape the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen.